Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, when Clyde Chambliss, Alabama Senate sponsor of a 2019 law banning virtually all abortion, no exceptions for rape or incest, was asked whether the law would likewise criminalize in vitro fertilization clinics that discard embryos, his answer was, quote, the egg in the lab doesn't apply. It's not in a woman, close quote. Anti-reproductive rights folks have been shooting their shot for a while, but they now have a Supreme Court majority to help. So who's speaking for the majority of U.S. citizens who support a person's right to determine whether and when to have a child? We'll talk about the Supreme Court's potential overturning of Roe v. Wade with Preston Mitchum, Director of Policy at URGE, Unite for Reproductive and Gender Equity, and Adjunct Professor of Law at Georgetown University Law Center. Also on the show, Arizona Republicans are insisting on an audit of one county's votes in the 2020 election. As much as one might want to dismiss that as sour grapes, observers are calling the Arizona maneuver a new, more dangerous front in the voting wars. That merits our attention. We'll talk about that with Stephen Rosenfeld, editor at Voting Booth, a project of the Independent Media Institute. Both abortion and voting are presented by corporate news media as merely issues that you can care about or not care about as you choose. Maybe that's because their assumption is that elite media readers will always be able to vote or to obtain abortions. That insularity says everything about the need to go outside elite news media for perspectives and information about vital concerns. All of that's coming up this week on Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. The New York Times says that by taking up the case of Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, the Supreme Court is plunging back into the contentious debate over abortion. But the right established in Roe v. Wade of the individual and not the state to decide whether to terminate their pregnancy prior to the point at which a fetus could live outside the womb is not really contentious. Majorities of the U.S. public support it, and for some 50 years, courts have as well. As Rewire's Jessica Mason-Piclo noted, there is not a single federal appeals court decision upholding a law, like the Mississippi one under contention, that outlaws abortion at 15 weeks, a date with no medical meaning that even proponents can't explain. Pre-viability bans are always unconstitutional. On Dobbs itself, lower courts declared the ban plainly unconstitutional, and a federal district court judge called out state lawmakers' motives, noting, quote, the state chose to pass a law it knew was unconstitutional to endorse a decades-long campaign, close quote. But as some will recall, Donald Trump announced on the campaign trail that if elected, he would create a Supreme Court that would overturn Roe. And here we are with the court considering a case which, as Piclo explains, doesn't require them to endorse Mississippi's 15 weeks ban, but only to ponder 
whether all pre-viability prohibitions on elective abortions are unconstitutional. Does that mean the end of Roe? What would that mean? Preston Mitchum is director of policy at the group URGE, Unite for Reproductive and Gender Equity, as well as adjunct professor of law at Georgetown University Law Center. He joins us now by phone from Washington, D.C. Welcome to Counterspin, Preston Mitchum. Thank you so very much. I'm happy to be here. Well, when we spoke with URGE Executive Director Kimberly Nesmiguire in February, she explained how abortion being legal and abortion being accessible are very much not the same thing. Acknowledging that the right that Roe v. Wade codified of a pregnant person to decide whether to continue that pregnancy pre-viability, that recognizing that that's not been a realizable right for many women for some time and for some really ever, that's not to say that Roe didn't matter, and it certainly wasn't to say that losing Roe would not matter. What weight are you giving or, or how are you responding to this latest turn in the legal landscape? Kimberly is absolutely right. Roe is not enough, has never been enough, and we still need it. Mm-hmm. And what I think is really important to recognize here is that legal abortion, of course, is on the line, but keeping abortion legal is only the first step. And so what Kimberly was really speaking about is a thing that many of us are starting to speak about and that many others have been speaking about for quite a while, is that legality alone is not and has never been enough because the legal right to abortion access really means nothing if the same people who have the right can't access their right. You know, there is a difference between having a choice and having the ability to effectuate that choice. And so what we think about is our vision and the vision being bigger, committed to creating communities and centering communities where our loved ones are able to receive the abortion care that they need. And unfortunately, even with Roe, many have been forced to give birth. Because, of course, Roe established the right, a very important right, to abortion pre-viability. The one thing it did not establish was that people need access to abortion pre-viability. Well, the Dobbs case that's coming forward that the court has said they'll listen to is, you know, it's not unique. Listeners will know that. The Guttmacher Institute says that 2021 may be the most damaging anti-abortion state legislative session in a decade and perhaps ever. There have been more than 500 abortion restrictions, including more than 100 outright bans across some 46 states. So I guess my question is... What's the difference between state and federal here? You know, we hear Biden saying, well, whatever the court does, even if the court overturns Roe, we're going to still push for Roe rights. But so much of this seems to be happening at the state level. So what what is the federal role here? What could be meaningfully done if the court makes this decision? The first thing I'll say to that is, you know, the Biden-Harris administration need to actually say the word abortion to speak about abortion care and access. Mm-hmm. You know, to date, we have minimally heard the Biden-Harris administration actually talk about abortion as abortion, right? It's centered on Roe. People don't go into the clinical setting to get a Roe. Yeah. They go into the clinical setting to get an abortion. And so, you know, that's really important to name explicitly some of the issues related to why the Biden-Harris administration aren't talking about abortion care by name. So I want to first name that because it's incredibly important. The second thing I'll name is that there is something Congress can do 
And what Congress can really start to do is passing legislation to protect the right to abortion care, such as the Women's Health Protection Act or WIPA. URGE has actively worked on the Women's Health Protection Act that will be introduced in the coming weeks in the 117th Congress with our friends at the Center for American Rights. What's really exciting about WIPA is that if passed, it will protect the right to abortion access throughout the United States and really safeguard the curtailing of those rights, like the one we see happening in Mississippi. So there is something that the federal government can do that Congress can do pretty immediately in the coming weeks, and that's co-sponsor and pass the Women's Health Protection Act. Well, in terms of media coverage, I'm always incensed when I see media present abortion as a cultural issue, as as if it's kind of a soft issue as opposed to a serious issue like economics, you know? If there's anything more central to economic life than the ability to decide whether and when to have a child, I can't imagine what it is. And yet, again and again in media, we see even, you know, Reuters talking about this. Supreme Court jumps into U.S. culture wars. You know, I just, I feel that the way media talk about abortion, it kind of lines up with the White House where you don't say the word abortion because that's icky, you know, so you don't present it as a central economic core integral right for human beings to have. It's instead something that, you know, religious people care about or something. Exactly. And what it does is, is, is it continues to drive a wedge that shouldn't be a wedge. You know, when we're talking about abortion, we're talking about life-saving treatment that people actually need. It's medical care. It's health care. And in many ways, all statistics show that abortion care is in many ways safer than giving birth. Right. And so, you know, those are statistics, in fact, that many people, unfortunately, who are driving this quote-unquote culture war narrative don't want people to, to believe or understand, but it's true. And unfortunately, what it does, it undermines the necessary conversation we must have around reproductive health rights and justice, especially reproductive justice, right? So, of course, reproductive justice is more than abortion. It's it's comprehensive. But we're talking about the human right to maintain bodily autonomy, have children, not have children, and parent the children we have in safe and sustainable communities. Abortion access is a critical part of maintaining reproductive justice for Black folks, for Indigenous folks, for Asian American and Pacific Islander communities, for Indigenous folks. And we must center it on the work where people can create a future for themselves, where every person can make their own decisions with dignity, with autonomy, and with self-determination. And you're absolutely right. When media coverage and narrative is about culture war, it creates this idea that only some people should have abortion access, that the people who do want abortion access are the people who are against what is actually the moralistic framing of this country. And it creates this divide of good and bad. Abortion is not about good or bad. Abortion is about access and creating the families and the communities that we want, that we can see, and that can thrive in the system that we have today. Well, just finally, I guess I would say I think so many elite reporters can cover abortion as an abstraction because, you know, if you're a reporter at the New York Times, nobody you know is going to have any trouble obtaining an abortion, no matter what the Supreme Court decides. Exactly. I just think that you don't have experience of what it means to have to ask your parents or have to get on a bus and travel two states over. I guess I would ask you finally, whose voices could media be listening to that could reshape the understanding that they're putting forward about abortion rights and access? That is such 
an important question. And I think that is the question that we should all be asking ourselves. This is not about uplifting particular politicians' voices more than anyone else's. This is about centering the people who abortion has been out of reach since Roe and will certainly be out of reach if Roe is suddenly pushed back and overturned by the Supreme Court. We should really be listening to abortion patients and those who have had abortions, those who may want abortions in the future. And that includes Black people, that includes women, of course, and other folks capable of becoming pregnant, like trans and non-binary people and queer people. That includes young people, especially. That includes places where abortion access has been chipped away time and again, like the South and the Midwest. It includes poor people and people who are struggling to make ends meet. And it really includes the communities that the media so often forget about and never talk to and certainly don't center in their conversation. Abortion care and abortion access is a racial justice and it's an economic justice issue. And until we have those honest conversations, we'll be in the court hoping that they save our lives time and again. We've been speaking with Preston Mitchum, director of policy at the group Urge, Unite for Reproductive and Gender Equity. Find their work online at urge.org. Preston Mitchum, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you so much for having me. That people who are still fighting the Civil War are still fighting the 2020 presidential election is utterly unsurprising. The questions are around how far our political and legal and media systems will go to indulge that alternate reality. A test of sorts is underway now in Arizona, where the state Senate is auditing votes from Maricopa County. That's where Phoenix is. And that's after previous audits found that, yes, the county and the state did go for Joe Biden, or fraudulent Joe Biden, as, for example, the website of Arizona State Senator Wendy Rogers refers to him. It's easy for many of us to sort of check out on what might seem like a backwater dispute, but we have hopefully learned that it's best not to sleep on state-level actions that can have meaningful impacts. One person with both eyes on Arizona is Stephen Rosenfeld. He's editor at Voting Booth, a project of the Independent Media Institute. He joins us now by phone from San Francisco. Welcome back to Counterspin, Stephen Rosenfeld. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. Well, I know for sure that most people don't know what's happening in Arizona. They think, you know, to put it crudely, Okay, they're recounting because their guy lost, but their guy lost. So, you know, let them waste their time as they will. You know, it's it's damaging to the extent that it reifies the perception that there were major flaws in the 2020 election, though somehow just the presidential part. But still, it's just denialists spinning their wheels. Your reporting suggests that that might be taking it too lightly. So I would ask you to explain what's happening in Arizona and why are you concerned about it? Sure. Yes. So I cover not just voting rights, but what's called election administration. And these are the details of how elections are run. And that means at the front end, who gets to vote, and then it means how votes are counted. And then it also means how they're double checked. 
So what's happening in Arizona, just as you described, is that the Trump supporters basically have not wanted to accept the results. And what's happened is the state Senate there basically went to court and did something that most of the Trump campaign lawyers did not do, which is they won. And they won the right to examine all of the ballots and the voting machines in the state's largest county, which is Maricopa, which is Phoenix. And then they brought in a bunch of outside firms that were run by people who were pro-Trump, tweeting pro-Trump stuff. And they have had minimal or no experience with elections, recounting votes or understanding how things are inventoried and, and counted. And they basically have been looking for problems to bolster the claim that the election was stolen. And the thing about this is they're not certified by the federal government as firms that have election expertise. It's basically a privatized partisan effort that they hope to take to other states, but they've gotten more traction in Arizona because the state Senate there, which is a majority Republican Senate, has basically given them the power to proceed. Well, and this is, again, you're saying they're private, so they're not government-sanctioned folks. They're private entities that have been brought in and not brought in for expertise in anything, doing anything like this ever before? Yes. So what's happening is I was able to get in and observe on the floor of this old Coliseum in the western part of Phoenix because there are a handful of progressives who want to help these Republicans figure out and believe what can be trusted in elections. And I won't go there, but Mm -hmm. they brought me in. So Mm -hmm. I was on the floor for several days watching up close. And what they've done is they have several different audits or investigations underway. Some of these you've heard about, like they're looking through microscopes at paper ballots to see if any of the fibers in the paper are from China, because there's this conspiracy theory that 40,000 ballots were snuck in at night, which is completely unfounded. And other people are doing work that has actually disproven that, but that hasn't gotten widely out. But the main thing they're doing is counting ballots by hand. And they're doing it in such a way that they are not cross-referencing the subtotals. Now, we're talking 2.1 million ballots. They're not cross-referencing the subtotals you get from the different batches with the official county numbers or inventory. And there are other election records as well, which are like digital images of every ballot because they're scanned. So as a result, they don't have controls that you would normally have to spot errors. Sometimes if you go to recounts, People will recount stuff by hand several times before they get to an agreed-upon total. So not only are these folks just doing it once, and they've never done it before, and they don't have things to cross-reference it to, when they get to the finish line, they're putting all their tally sheets into a spreadsheet, and nobody is copying the tally sheets, or they weren't when I was there, and nobody is cross-referencing them or checking to see if there are typos. And we're talking about thousands and thousands of sheets with numbers being put into a giant spreadsheet. So, of course, you're not going to get a result that matches the official 
results, and you probably can't delve in and pinpoint where there were mistakes or diversions and build a case on that. So that's what's going on. Does that make sense? Yeah, you know, and it, it, what it, it makes sense to say that what might be delivered is a murky, confusing, you know, uh, thing in which people will be able to decide whatever they want to about it, you know, and that's the problem, yeah? It's really, really simple. If you think about... Recounting votes, it's like balancing a checkbook. You don't want to estimate, oh, well, maybe I thought I had this much in the bank. Mm -hmm. You you have to go line by line or vote by vote or ballot by ballot and account for it all. So these folks were so interested in ripping open these boxes of paper ballots, they had no idea how physical ballots were organized or inventoried or looking at documents from the county to cross-check that, and they're just kind of, you know, pushing ahead. Mm. And even though they want to be taken seriously and they, you know, they have all the attitude and all the appearances and all the optics, when it comes to actually accounting for votes, and looking at ballots where, you know, this was not clear. Somebody circled an oval or they smudged it or spilled coffee. They have no procedures to account for all of that stuff and document it back to the question, the ballot in question. And we're talking 2.1 million of these. Right. So that's kind of what's going on is that at that level, they're new to this. So they're discovering things as they go. And, you know, you don't start learning about elections in presidential contests. You kind of do it locally, and it takes a number of years, but that's a whole nother. And then, you know, the whole point of it is that it's a meant to be, in terms of optics, let's add more transparency, you know, given that some people believe, which is the argument that we're told, some people were thought that maybe the the process was flawed. So this is meant to be adding transparency. And yet, as the Arizona Republic has said, the contractors who've been signed to this audit have declined to name or have failed to specify everyone who had access to the information and the materials and who's paying for the work. So even Arizona Republic local reporters are unable to get basic information about who's even doing this audit. And yet it's the language is all about transparency. Yeah, well, here's the the, the big takeaway on that. And this is my perspective of having been a reporter who's covered election administration. You know, these are the details that either suppress votes or include votes, exclude. The process that government-run election officials use after Election Day is not sufficiently simple or easily understood by the public so that the people on the losing side can accept the results. It's very technocratic, and it's unfortunate because what ends up happening is you end up creating a vacuum that's filled with all the conspiracy, Mm -hmm. you know, the Mm B-movie plot line. Mm -hmm. And what's really unfortunate about this is when you take a look at all the legislation that's being passed, and whether it's in blue or red states this year, 2021, people are not taking a look at using or even acknowledging that there's better underlying data and records to go really far upstream and reconcile as an accounting process 
what were the votes and were they counted accurately? It's, so, so that is a part of this, too. If you want to ask the question, why does this narrative just keep going? Why doesn't it stop? Mm-hmm. It's because there's a bit of a vacuum in government-run elections, processes, that's opaque and allows the theories to trickle in. Right. Well, let me ask you very simply, this isn't going to overturn the election. No. This isn't going to... What might it do? What these people are doing, who are the contractors that are brought in by the Arizona Senate, is they are basically trying to develop a business model where they can take it to other states and they can basically have Republican partisans where they have majorities in their legislatures say, we don't trust a government-run elections. We want you to hire our private guys to go in months afterward. And it just keeps perpetuating the doubt and perpetuating that maybe the people in power are illegitimate. And so that's the business model. I heard them talk about this. They literally said, we expect this process to be common in many states in a couple of years. And by the way, this hand count is going to cost $3.4 million. And I heard that from the people who are organizing it. And the state Senate has only appropriated $150,000 for this. The rest is all private donations. Wow. Wow. Okay. Yep. So it's a business model, and they're going to run it wherever they can. You now see groups of Trumpers in Michigan, in California. This has been reported in the Washington Post, where they're trying to lean on local election boards or counties to hire these same folks who have no experience. The bottom line here is they don't know what they are looking for in the election files. They don't know what to compare it to, to cross-reference it, to actually spot where there are mistakes, because there are mistakes that are made. The question is, do they scale? Do they overturn the results? And the bottom line is, if you take a look at elections where there are recounts, there's almost been no election that I know of going back decades when the margin was more than 1,000 votes that recounts overturned it. So these states where, you know, Biden won by 10, 12,000 votes, there's no precedent for that. It sounds small when two or three million people vote, but it's not when it comes to recounts and overturning results, historically speaking. All right, then. Well, we're going to pick it up. Later, clearly, because we'll need to, but we'll end it here for now. We've been speaking with Stephen Rosenfeld. He's editor of the Voting Booth Project at the Independent Media Institute online at independentmediainstitute.org. Stephen Rosenfeld, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. I'm delighted as always. Thank you. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. You can find more information on FAIR.org. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.